you give them something to eat. How are we going to do that, Jesus? We don't have the resources to do that. And yet I think Jesus never asks us to do something that he himself is not able to back up. I'm bringing it back to us. The thing that is in front of us that we think is insurmountable. Just too much. We don't have the resources. We're not able. Even if we were willing, we're not able. But if we know Jesus has called us to do something, he gives us the resources to back that up. I point to you who call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. What has he called you to? Would he call you to do something for you to fail? No. He provides all that resource that we need. And here is a crucial thing. If we are willing. And we can be unwilling because we are broken. We can be unwilling because our hearts have become hard. You feed them. You care for them. Don't just send them away. And the incredible thing is this account is in the four Gospels. There is something significant for us to hear from the feeding of the 5,000. So they gather what they have. And in verse 18, Jesus says, bring them here to me. Verse 19. And he directed the people to sit on the grass. I imagine them going into their family groups. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Uh, miracle number one. They all ate and were satisfied. 15,000 plus people were satisfied because Jesus provided for their needs. He is able and he wants to. Miraculous. Why wouldn't he provide for your needs where you are? Yeah, we can, we, can, we can look at refiner's fire and that we have to go through difficult things and we may speak about that in a minute or two. But that basic concept of who he is and his character, why would he not give us the desires of our heart if they are in line with his kingdom purposes? Are we willing for the miraculous, the healings, the walls to come tumbling down? Etc., etc., etc. The relationships restored. In Matthew 20, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. I, I see here Matthew, um, I see an event in Matthew's gospel that reminds me of something in Exodus. And many of you will know what I'm talking about here. The original uh, people who were reading this were Jews. Jews who knew their scripture. Jews who knew their, uh, their, their cultures, their, their, their ethnic cultures, history, their people's history. And in this part, you'll see Matthew referring in two places uh, to a place. Verse 13, 
Um, we read, when Jesus heard what was happening, he withdrew privately to a boat to a solitary place. And then in 15, at evening, as the evening approached, the disciples came to him and Jesus said, this is a remote place. I think there's hints that Matthew is giving us of something that happened in Israel's history. And then, it, well, first of all, literally that word is the same word, the, the word for solitary and remote. If you, if you look at the language in the Greek, it's the exact same word. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I forgot it already. But it's the same word and it means desert place, isolated, deserted place. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, taking the five loaves and two fishes, Jesus looked up to heaven. It's not just a, a, a he's inten intentionally looking to heaven, intentionally looking to his father to provide. Father, would you do a miracle here? And then Matthew also records in verses 20 that the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Is there a, an incident that's coming to your mind? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus, which is the second book uh, left from the left. And verse 7, here is the Lord's heart. Here is the Father's heart. Here is Jesus' heart. The Lord says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, and I think Matthew is looking back to that account. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So God raised up Moses, called his people out of Egypt. Who were his people? Israel. What was the number? The 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent them into the desert. And in the desert, they had no food. They looked up to heaven and God provided. Because Jesus is the same as God in the Old Testament. Here is a little glimpse Matthew is showing us of the divinity of Jesus. In a desert place, he looks up to heaven and the Father provides. I think he's clearly drawing that out. As God provided in the Old Testament, God provides in the New Testament. The same God who provides is the one who is filled with compassion. So that's the first thing, the provision of God. Second, Verses 22 and 24, the power of God. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves due, uh, because the wind was against it. So Jesus is in prayer from sunset uh, to, to near sunrise. And as Jesus was laboring in prayer, the disciples, his followers, were laboring in the storm. How many of us have woken up at silly o'clock? Um, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock, up to whatever. Woken up at silly o'clock 
And so many things are racing through our mind. I need to do this, I need to do that. Or how am I going to accomplish that? I've, I've now, I still do this, but I've now realised, and I say to myself, there's nothing you can do at this time, David. There's nothing you can do. Because more often than not, the darkness and the silence, my fears are at its most strongest during that point. Am I just alone in that? Or is it, it's a common thing, isn't it? It's very common for us. We've fought many fights and survived many storms during those hours. Well, the Hebrew understanding of time was divided up into three watches. There was the first watch, the middle, the first, the middle, and the morning watch. But then Rome, which had a huge influence over everything, they established that number to be four. So the first watch was from six o'clock to nine o'clock. The second watch was from nine o'clock to 12 o'clock. The third watch was from 12 o'clock to three o'clock. And the fourth watch, the watch that we're in just now, was from three o'clock to six o'clock in the morning. So by the time that Jesus came to the disciples in the water, by the time that Jesus showed up in the midst of the storm that they were going through, physical storm, but undoubtedly there are many other types of storms, but in the physical storm, the disciples would probably have been tormented by that sea for about nine or ten hours, something like that. We knew the majority of them were fishermen, but they were tormented by the wind and the waves. But why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't Jesus come in the first watch, the second watch, the third watch? Why might he have uh, left it to the fourth watch? Fourth watch. Imagine this. During the first watch, the disciples began with great intensity. They knew where they were going and they rowed hard. They kept rowing and rowing and rowing, but they got nowhere. Discouragement sets in when that happens. In the second watch, here's potentially what might have happened. Maybe some of the disciples said something like this. Come on, we can do this. We've done it before. We can do it again. Let's do it. And so they continue on in the struggle, a pep talk, and they continue. Then comes the third watch into their seventh hour or whatever it may be. And they're still going nowhere. And they're now being tempted by despair. And maybe, maybe, just maybe there's a lone voice that can be heard amongst all the disciples. And they're saying, guys, let's not give up. Let's keep on the struggle. We've all had that lone voice who is just what we needed at the right time. But then the fourth watch does utter despair. And I can imagine the disciples turning to one another and saying, oh, we're doomed, we're doomed. That's a dad's army thing, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But you can imagine that we're lost at sea. Jesus permits this. Jesus knows where they're at, but Jesus permits that. Why might that be the case that Jesus allowed them to be battered by the storm? When we can see he has got the power over it, why would he allow that to happen? Many of us know this, that revelation of truth more often than not comes when life is hard. And when life is easy, when the bills are being paid, when we've got enough money in uh, the bank, when people like us, when our plans are going well, more often than not, but not all the time, but more often than not, revelation of real truth does not happen then. It's only when we're in the struggle, when only we're in the refiner's fire, that a proper revelation of divine truth comes to us. 
And in verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, when they were despairing, Jesus went out to them walking in the lake. And when disciples saw him, saw him walking in the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. In the middle of the storm, at the fourth watch, when there was no voice of encouragement, Jesus comes in power. <laughs> you can't, although they say it's a ghost, you know, they're in the middle, their, their minds are not in the right place. And I'm sure there's other things going on there. But Jesus comes in the middle of the storm when all hope was lost. Some people claim that Jesus never claimed that he was divine. But verse 27 comes against that completely. It is I. You'll look at other translations and it will say, I am. Because literally, it is I means I am. And again, Matthew writing for Jewish audience was, was being very specific about who Jesus is, the Son of God. He is divine. He's come from the Father. I am. And their minds would have gone back to Exodus. To when God revealed his name, his self-given name to Moses at the burning bush. It is I. I am. I am has come to you. Now there's something again quite remarkable about this and I've got lots of things. They worshipped him. For an orthodox Jewish person to worship someone, to worship a human being meant that you, were be, you would be subject to pain of death. And yet they worshipped him. They knew who he was. Now they could see him heal people. Now they can see him um, raising people from the dead. Now they can see him with the power over the wind of the waves walking in the water. And all of his teaching. And they came to, he came to them in the midst of their deepest despair and divine revelation came to them and they worshipped him. They would only do that if they were convinced it was the truth. Otherwise, much like when Saul went about in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, from town to town, nation to nation, gathering up this sect among Judaism who were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Saul, a good Orthodox Jew, was doing the right thing in relation to the law and arresting him and bringing him before the authorities so that they would face punishment of death. And yet here you see the disciples Willingly saying, you are who you, you said you are. And they worshipped him. I am who I am, who I will be. I am the everlasting one, the God who has no beginning and no end. Not just any God, because I'm sure many people claim to be God. Jesus was claiming specifically to be the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So here is the provision. Here is the power of Jesus, the son of God. And I just briefly finish not with faith in the Son of God. We see Peter walking on water. 
Lord, if it is you, Peter replied in verse 28, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he says. And then Peter got down out of the boat and walked in the water and came towards Jesus. What an experience, fixing his eyes firmly on Jesus. We use the phrase, I think it's from Hebrews, the author and perfecter of our faith, Peter fixes his eyes on Jesus and walks towards him. Above the storm, above the wind and the waves. And then we know the story very well in verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and crying out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he says. Why did you doubt? Is it not odd that Peter should suddenly become concerned about the wind and the waves? How many hours has he battled in the storm up to that point? Nine, ten hours. But at this point, he, becomes af he became afraid of the wind and the waves. Why might that be the case? What's happening here in verse 20? Very briefly, very directly, I would suggest that the orientation of Peter's heart at that point shifted. The orientation, the focus of Peter's heart at that point changed. He got out of the boat and he fixed his eyes on Jesus because Jesus says, come, so he came. And he fixed his eyes on him. And then the, for whatever reason, the wind and the waves, he took his gaze, he took his focus off of Jesus and at that point began to sink. That is a warning to all of us. Where is the orientation of your heart? Have you settled with where you're at? Or are you bold enough to step out again and again and again? It's a challenge to all of us. Many years have I been a believer, 30 or something like that. Have I got stuck in my ways? Undoubtedly I have. Have I sunk when I was encouraged to walk in the water and come? Definitely. What was happening became complacent. Took my eyes off Jesus, the cares of the world. But I should stand up here and preach a sermon with my bags packed. That's the challenge. Bold enough to offend you if I believe it is the word of God. And so should everyone who stands here. That is a focus on Jesus. Fear grips him rather than faith. I think this is what this whole section is about, the orientation of Peter's heart. Come, Jesus says. To me, eyes focus in on me. I'm sure it's happened in Jurassic Park, right? Where someone's standing there, facing someone talking, and down, fortunately, further down the road, there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex, T-Rex. And the person gets back to him, does not notice this. He's enjoying, oh, look at that lovely plant-eating things. And the person facing the T-Rex doesn't go, it's behind you. None of that pantomime rubbish. He says, focus in on me. Come on, just focus in on me. Come this way. Because he knows that if that person turns around and looks at the T-Rex, he's gripped with fear and he does not move an inch. Or he does that classic Hollywood thing and he stumbles and falls and they come and eat him. Where's the orientation of your heart? Is it fixed on Jesus? Or are you constantly darting about with fear? But take courage. 
because in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestled with God during the night before entering the destiny of becoming Israel. And in Exodus 14, Moses led God's people through the Red Sea during the night. And in Judges 7, Gideon defeated the Midianites during the middle watch. You know, first, middle, whatever it else was, morning. And as shepherds watched their flocks by night and looked to, the angels appeared to them, announcing the birth of the Savior of the world. And after the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day, Jesus rose from the grave. He is a God who provides, he has compassion, he sees our needs, and he is able to meet them. You may not be plucked out of the storm. There may be a refining process that has to happen there. But will you trust him in it? And will we trust him in the course? He's a God of power and he lacks nothing. So if he loves you enough to do anything and he is powerful enough that he can save, he can do anything for you, how will you respond to that? Will you respond to the invite of come? No matter what, leave it all and come follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. We know the challenge. It's as old as we are and older. It's nothing new. But many of us have forgotten it because of the orientation of our heart. I know it's very simplistic and I'm going to finish with this. And I invite people, I'm actually going to ask the guys to play some song. And I invite anyone to come here and stand and just receive a blessing. Need not say what is on your heart. Need not confess to anyone. I'm not your priest or anything like that. But if you are challenged by that invite to come, no matter what, with your mind focusing on something that is gripping you with fear, that, that, that has maybe stalled you in your life, I invite you simply just to come anywhere here or stand, whatever it may be. So please, not everyone would get to stand, so it helps. Come forward. And one or two or three or four of us will just pray simple blessing because God knows your heart. But that action of getting out your seat or coming forward when you know eyes are on you helps you, I think, to break fear. So it may seem simplistic and yet we're encouraged to have a faith which at times should be childlike. In verse 32, we read this. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. May it be so for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, you're good, you're good, and your love endures forever. We know that full well. Great is your faithfulness, O God, our Father. Thank you for Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Thank you that he conquered the powers of death and, and, and sin and hell. And he holds the keys to all of that. I thank you that he is seated at your right hand side, our Father, in the place of authority. And he is there until you have made a footstool of his enemies. And Lord, may we be ones who willingly bow the knee to Jesus. Who take up our cross and follow him. Because we know life in him is life in all of its fullness. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen.